0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped.
1: Well, good morning. I invite you to open in your Bible to Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through thirty. So it's Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. As always, it'll be up on the screen as we walk through it, but it's usually a little easier. I know even for me, when I listen, if you have your own copy right there in front of you, because sometimes it gets a little hard to keep up with me on the screens. They move back and forth. But if you have your own copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, it's a lot easier to, to follow along with the sermon. And that's what we want to do. This morning, as we have only three weeks left, including this one, this one and two more, in the book of Mark. We started about six months ago, halfway through the book of Mark. We started in chapter 9, and it, we have walked our way nice and slow. And we're coming to an end. We're coming to a place, not only in the book of Mark, but even throughout the Bible, through us as Christians, of what we're really about and what we really believe this is the climax the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what the next three weeks cover. This week is his crucifixion. Next week is his death. And the week after will be the resurrection of Christ. And that will conclude the book of Mark. It's the apex of all that we believe. That's what the whole Old Testament is moving toward. It's what the rest of the New Testament points back to. It's what your life and my life are centered around. When we say, I want to be a Christian and I want to follow Jesus, are these events Right here. The point of today's sermon is this. Jesus took our place. That's the point, I think, of Mark fifteen twenty-one to 32. I'm going to add a subtitle to that. I'm going to add a little application. He took our place that we might be like him. He took our place that we might be like him. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, tells us this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We are to be imitators of God as his beloved children and the way we do that is we walk in love and then the example the Apostle Paul gives, like I said, the New Testament, what is it always pointing backwards to? It points back to Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He took our place so that we might be like him. I want us to see this morning that he took our place alone, he took our shame, and finally, he took our crimes. As we look at Mark 15, verses 21 through 32, that Jesus took our place. So reading those verses now. And they can build a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, Who's was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him mixed wine with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews." And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe and those who crucif- who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the crucifixion of Jesus. As we look, that he took our place. And what we want to see in those first two verses, verses 21 through 23, or three verses, is that he took it alone. The Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus carries his own cross to Calvary or Golgotha, this place of a skull that they're talking about. But yet here in the Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, we are told that this man, Simon of Cyrene, is coming in from out of the country and he helps carry the cross of Jesus. And so we have to ask, so which is it? Is John right? Are the other three right? What does he do? And I think the most easy, straightforward thing is the reality that Jesus probably began carrying his own cross and carried it a long way but because of the scourging and the beating that he endured the previous passage and because of the exhaustion of being kept up all night praying with his disciples and all that had come and transpired before this point he falls in pure exhaustion and he cannot carry his own cross in this man a passerby simon of cyrene Is compelled or forced to carry the cross of Jesus. Now Mark is showing us something here. Now I do believe this literally happened, but we need to remember that this is a redemptive story under the sovereign hand of God and that these things don't just happen by accident. And as Mark is telling us the story, he is teaching us things that he wants us to see that are happening. And in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 35, he has said something extraordinary. Jesus has said something extraordinary. Before the crucifixion is happening, Jesus says in verse 34 of chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and... Take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but wh- whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. And here we are. Jesus now needs a cross literally carried on his behalf, and there is no one that, his deci- that is his disciple that can be found. They have all fled and abandoned him. Peter promised, I'll be there with you, though nobody else follows. And this is where he's supposed to be, to carry the cross of his Lord. And there is nobody to carry the cross. So a stranger coming in from the country is forced to do it for him. This shows us that the Romans would not do something like that. These Roman guards were, saw so, so badly of crucifixion, it was thought of such a humiliating thing that they wouldn't even pick it up themselves, but rather they make someone else do it. But it also shows us that even though there was no disciple to pick up the cross that Jesus has told them that they need to do, that there is nothing that's going to stop the Son of the living God from going and pay for our sins that God will make himself a disciple who will, in fact, pick up the cross and follow Jesus the way we all are supposed to. Simon of Cyrene, he is a symbol for us all of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to pick up our cross and follow in his steps. We don't know him But it seems like Mark's readers may have known Alexander and Rufus. I don't know why else he says the father of Alexander and Rufus. The best theory we have on the book of Mark is that it was probably written to the Roman church, a Gentile church. It was written to these Romans, and in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, the apostle Paul mentions a guy named Rufus and his mother. So we don't know for sure but it seems to be a lot of evidence piling up that the truth is is that this Roman church would have known Rufus, would have maybe known his brother Alexander and known his mother and maybe not known his father because Serene is a is a place in North Africa, that perhaps he was a Jewish man coming to celebrate the Passover who had, who had went and settled in North Africa. Or maybe he's just a North African guy in the wrong place at the wrong time, which turned out to be just the right place at the right time. And we don't know, is was it carrying the cross of Jesus and seeing the crucifixion of Jesus that led to maybe his salvation, the salvation of his wife, the salvation of his sons, Alexander and Rufus. There's a lot of conjecture in that, but it seems to be a lot of evidence piling up that Mark would seem to think that this Roman church would know who Alexander and who Rufus are. They say, you know, his dad, their dad, that who is compelled to carry the cross of Jesus. Whatever the case may be, what we see is that as a stranger is compelled to carry his cross, that Jesus is determined to get there, is determined to make it to the top of Calvary's Mount, and that nothing will stop him from doing this. And he is fulfilling his own prophecy in John chapter 16, verse 32, where he says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. You will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Then he says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus pulls on the strength of being with the Father and continues to follow and make it to the top of Golgotha, which we often call Calvary because the Latin word for scalp is Calvus, which is where we get Calvary. <laughs> So often those places are talked about. They are one in the same. This place of the skull or the scalp that we can see. And this is what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. Like I said in Mark 34, is if you want to come and follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross. That's what it looks like to be a disciple. That's what Mark has been pointing to us. And we see is all the disciples fail to be a disciple. None of them are there when it's time to pick up the cross But later we know that men like Peter take up their own cross and follow Jesus and are crucified and martyred. That Christians will go and they will take up the cross of Christ because he will change them. And this will be the norm for Christians to follow Jesus even when their life is on the line. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, missionaries for various denominations from the West began to Make their way into India, where many people were Hindu. And as they did that, as they shared the gospel and shared the gospel message with people, what they saw was that people would, when they converted, would experience very deep and extreme persecution. And we don't know a lot about the song that came out of this, but here's what we know. In the 1950s and 1960s in America, a song was was found in these old hymns that came out of these missionary movements from India. And there were two verses of a song found, and then they were westernized. And it was, I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back, no turning back. And the second verse that was found when they looked at that was, though none go with me, I still will follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And what is amazing about this is we don't know who wrote it. There's a lot of really inspirational stories of where it may came from. I wish they were true because they would make a better illustration. But I don't know that they're true, so I don't want to use them. But what we do know, what we do know is that this song came out of a movement From India, a people who are experiencing extreme persecution. And that it was this communal song that made its way in these churches of India to the point where a Western missionary wrote it down and translated it into English. Two more verses are added later when it comes to the states in the 50s and 60s. But those two verses, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back is what came out of the heart of persecuted Christians in India. And what also came right after was, though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. There's no turning back. There is no turning back. What well, we have to see when we hear about movements like this of the gospel moving its way and in a hostile and extremely difficult culture and place where people are losing their families, their identity, their livelihood, and even their life is we must remember that these people are our people. They're my brother and my sister. Their persecution is my persecution because their cross is my cross because their hope is my hope because their Christ is my Christ. We have to ask, is this the call that Jesus has called us to? Though none go with me, will I still follow? Because that is the call that Mark is making clear. That when they scatter and leave, Jesus goes Alone, And he is doing that because he is taking our place so that we might be like him. So that when life hits us and God is calling you into persecution and difficulty and nobody else comes with you, will you still Do you follow Jesus because your spouse follows Jesus? Do you follow Jesus because your children follow Jesus? What if they turn away? They deny their faith. Will your heart sing, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. There is no turning back. That's the call. And it's a call that we have to take very seriously, especially as our culture grows in hostility. And even in this text, because in many ways the pain has just begun. Because it is so much more than physical, Jesus will also die in a humiliating Way, and in that he will take our shame. Verses twenty four to twenty seven. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. In the inscription of the charge against him read The King of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Crucifixion is gruesome. In fact, Romans refused to crucify their own citizens. No matter what sin they committed, they simply would not do that because it was just too gruesome. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves. It was reserved for prisoners of war. And it was reserved for foreigners, in particular foreigners who were trying to cause insurrections, trying to, to root out the Roman government where they were ruling. It was absolutely gruesome. And it was done always outside of city gates, but always on busy roads. They wanted people to see you. They wanted people to know that you were criminal. They wanted to see you naked. They wanted to see you ashamed, beaten, bloody, and hanging from a piece of wood. Because they wanted everybody to know, you cross us, and this is what will happen to you. When you were crucified, you did not die from losing too much blood. You did not die because someone put you to death. You died because you hung out in the elements for too long. You would either asphyxiate because you were unable to push up and breathe anymore because of exhaustion, or your heart would literally give out because the extreme torture and the extreme amount of pressure, the cross and hanging there, would put on your body. It didn't matter if it rained. It didn't matter if it got cold. It didn't matter what happened. They just left them to hang. This could take hours like it does for Jesus. For some, it took days. It's gruesome. It is difficult and it is absolutely humiliating because they would take your clothing and they would do things like they did to Jesus. He divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide who, what each should take. And this is happening in his sight and he is not yet dead. It would be like someone walking through your house while you're sitting on your deathbed, picking out the stuff they want to take after you die. Nobody does that because that is completely humiliating. You have to completely dehumanize and devalue a person to treat them as dead before they are dead and that's what they're doing to Jesus he is seen as a criminal completely neglected and they're casting lots over his clothing and yet this has to happen because in psalm 22:18 it says this they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots Thousands of years before Jesus hangs, the psalmist tells us this is going to happen. Next week we'll get into this, but I believe this is the psalm that Jesus is quoting when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he is looking down and he's seeing these things happen. The humiliation piles up because he is charged with being king of the Jews. This is meant to humiliate the Jews themselves and everybody who walks by, and even Jesus, because he says that he's the king of the Jews. And the Romans are saying to him, You think you're a king? Look at your king now. He hangs bloody and naked on a cross. And they pile it on even more because they hang him between two known criminals. The word robber could be also translated insurrectionist. They may have also been stirring up problems for the Romans. And the Romans are trying to say, "That's all that he is. He's a criminal, and we'll put him right in the middle of everybody else." And every Jew with him, as the song we just sang says, "Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers." The reality is is that we are seeing, as Romans and Jews come by and scoff at him and humiliate him, that this is representing all of humanity. This is what we all put on Jesus. The one who took our place. And he is hung up between these two criminals because Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered or counted with the transgressors. He is being counted or numbered as a criminal. And all these Old Testament prophecies that have been telling about the suffering servant are coming true, and we're seeing them happen. And that's what Mark is all about. The book is all about how Jesus, the Messiah, is the suffering king for the, on behalf of his people. That's what we named the sermon series, getting to know our servant king. He is the servant who came, and yet he is the king of the world. And in all of this, he is taking this humiliation because he is taking our place, and he is taking your humiliation and my humiliation. In the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we read this. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Sin enters the world, and what do we see happen? Shame. Shame is what happens. They hide. They are naked. And then in verse 21, skipping ahead, it says this. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, God shed blood, which had not happened in the Genesis narrative. And he clothes and covers them himself as a pointing forward that one day he would shed the blood of the lamb who is worthy to be slain. And in his blood, we would be covered in our nakedness. It says, And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground for which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what is happening in the book of Genesis? What I'm saying is God is separating us from himself. Why? Because we're naked and ashamed and sinful. And on the cross, he is reversing the curse. He is reversing sin and shame. He is becoming naked and beaten so that he might cover us in our shame, in our sin. Because 1 Peter 2, 24 tells us, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That is what's happening. He is taking your place in your shame. Why? What does that do for us? in the really practical kind of way, is this, is there's no longer a need to hide. You can call sin, sin in your life. And I'll tell you right now, that is something the world does not get. The world either lowers the bar and doesn't call sin, sin, or they create their own bar that they can live up to and then ignore their shortcomings. Christian, you don't have to do that nonsense. You can call sin sin in your life, and you can have freedom, freedom through faith and repentance. Ephesians five eleven through fourteen says, "Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says." Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You don't have to live in hidden shame from hidden sin that you don't want to tell anybody about. You can be free because Jesus took your shame. And you can expose your own deeds. Deeds that are shameful to talk about can be exposed between the Lord and trusted Christians so that you might receive healing and help. You are not trapped. You do not have to hide in the garden anymore. You do not have to try to make for yourself some kind of false and bad covering like fig leaves but Jesus instead has covered you in his own blood so that you might be free forever. That's the power of the gospel is we don't have to pretend like we have it all together. One last verse before I move on. Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He's talking about how we fight sin in this life, even as a Christian. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You are not doomed. Sin does not have dominion over you. It has lost its hold. No matter what it is that you're struggling with your life, you're thinking, I cannot get through this. I can't get over it. You might not be able to get over it on your own. You may need to bring somebody in. You may need to confess that sin to someone else, but that's the glory of the gospel is you are free to do that because you can call sin, sin because Jesus took your shame for you and he endured it on the cross so that you might lay aside every sin that so easily entangles you. You can have freedom. Your secrets will not keep you safe, but being covered in the blood of the lamb worthy, that will keep you safe. So don't grow weary in the struggle. Instead, consider Christ and his cross. Consider the hostility that he endured from sinners because that's what we will close with this morning is that he took our crimes. And in doing that, we're going to see the hostility that he endured, picking up in verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So as people are passing by, they deride him. That word translated there in Greek is the same word for blasphemy which is the charge that Jesus was given by the high priest, right? Jesus, he says, are you the son of the blessed? Are you the son of God? And Jesus says, I am, and you will see me coming with power, right? And he said that to him just a couple passages before. And the high priest stands up and he yells, what, what need of witnesses do we have? You've heard the blasphemy yourself, And he charges him with blasphemy, and that's why they put him to death. And now Mark is using this word, which is like never used in the New Testament, of somebody, uh, one human being to another. The word is typically, I mean, mostly used when human beings say something against God. And it is blasphemy. And they come and they blaspheme Jesus. When they hurl these insults, they blaspheme Jesus... As they say to him, come down. See, the reality is, as Mark is saying, who's actually guilty here? Who's guilty of blasphemy? It's these people, the chief priests and scribes, as they come and mock and revile Jesus, and those even who are hung with them, they're the ones who are guilty. But Jesus is taking their crime. They deserve death. They have blasphemed God. But Jesus instead stands in their place. But it goes even further, their guilt. The chief priests, they join in. They mock him. And they say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And this is another theme that Mark has been showing us all throughout the book, is that faith comes before sight. That faith comes before the sign, and they are saying, show us, and then we will believe. The like second sermon we did here in our sermon series together was when Jesus and Peter and uh, John, are coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and as they do, they come into this argument. And these scribes and, and, and Pharisees are there, and they're arguing with the disciples because they brought this little boy who has a spirit that causes him to have seizures. And they want the disciples to cast out the spirit and, and to heal this little boy, and they can't do it. They're not able to do it, and they bring in Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, like, can you heal him? And Jesus... He, he calls out their faith. He calls them a faithless generation because he's saying faith is what is required to see this miracle happen. And they're not able to do it and they can't, they can't make this thing work for them. And so Jesus is there and he begins to have a conversation with the father of this child. And as he has this conversation with the father, he asks him, how long has this been happening to you? And he starts telling him how long has been happening. And then the father says something, and Jesus catches it. He says, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, please heal my son. And Jesus catches it and says, if, if I can do anything, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the father, out of desperation, falls before Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. And then Jesus As the crowds are pressing in and people watch, cast out the demon. The little boy convulses, falls over, and the text tells us as if he were dead. And it says something really weird in the text. It says, and Jesus went to him and raised him up. This little story that happens in Mark chapter 9 is there because it is foreshadowing. It's an allusion to what's happening at the end. The whole climax, the whole point of it is what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to follow his father by faith. And a better miracle is going to happen than just casting out a demon. He's going to raise from the dead. He's going to be raised up from the dead. And that's going to happen, not as the sign so that they might see, but faith comes first. But these chief priests, these scribes, they're crying out and they're saying, show us and then we'll believe. The reality is it's because they want a God made in their image. They don't want to recognize that God has made made us in his image. That's what faith does. Faith conforms to reality. Faith helps you conform yourself to what is already true. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is true whether you believe it or not. Just like if you said, I don't believe in gravity, doesn't matter, don't jump. It's true. Jesus is who he says he is. But faith is what helps you conform to reality. These people want reality to conform to them. Non-belief, rejection of, of faith says, Hey, be like us, then we'll know you're the Christ do what I would do, then I'll know that you're God. Save yourself. Then we'll know that you really are Jesus, or you are the the Messiah. You are the Christ. That's ridiculous. Do something the Christ would never do. Do something the Old Testament says isn't going to happen. Do something no. It is the Father's will that he be crushed. It's for the joy set before him that he's going to go to the cross and endure it and disp- even though Jesus despises the same. There is no way the Son of Man is coming down from that cross. This is what he was meant to do. It's what God has called him to do and it's what makes him the Christ. So at the end of the age, when they cry out, who is worthy to open the seals? Who is worthy to bring in and inaugurate the kingdom of God? It's worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That's the whole point. They're crying out, be made in my image. Be Like me and God is looking to them and he's saying never never I am the Christ I'm the son of the living God and you're gonna see me coming with power but what makes me the Christ what makes me the Messiah is that nothing will stop me from enduring the cross so that I might bring many sons and daughters to glory nothing would stop him and that's what is happening it's the beauty of the serpent says to Eve, take of that and you'll be like God. God says, no. Faith conforms you to what is true. Jesus has told us in Mark ten forty five. for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's no way he was coming down. He was not going to save himself because he was saving others. That's the truth, and they just don't see it. As we look at this passage, and look what it teaches us, as we see that he takes our the humiliation, the wrath of God, the pain that he endures was our to, ours to endure. But he takes our place and he does it so that we might be like him. What I'm trying to help you see and I'm begging for all of us to see is the truth that sin no longer has dominion over you. You are not a slave to it any. More. But you can live free. You can have victory. That doesn't mean that it's easy. It may require letting someone into your difficulty, asking for help. But it is the good news that we all get to resonate with the Apostle Paul when he says in Galatians two twenty, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you live by faith? I don't mean do you take silly risk. I don't mean do you try to do some kind of miracle? What I mean by that is what Paul means by that. Do you live by faith in those moments where you know your actions, your thoughts, your words, and your deeds dishonor God and you say, God, I have to call sin, sin. And right now, I'm living life my way. I'm trying to conform the world in my image. Or will you say, by faith, I'm going to choose to believe that doing what honors you is what you've called me to do, what you've called me to be. He took our place so that we, by faith, might be like him.